Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning and we open your word, I ask that your spirit would use your word, definitely not mine, but use your word to speak to our hearts this morning. Give us the sense of how you desire to work in us, that those who perhaps don't know you yet, but you are calling them to yourself, would today repent and believe. And for those of us who you have called to yourself, that we would also repent and believe. Continue to lay down our lives for our King. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. We're getting close to the end of our, of our series in 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel 27 and 28 this morning, if you would like to turn there. What will we find here this morning? We will find two men who are both afraid to die. Two men who are both afraid to die. One of these men remembers what he was and he holds on to it with a deathly grip. The other forgets who he is and flees in fear instead of following in faith. Hopefully you've turned to 1 Samuel 27 by now. I'm going to read both chapters in their entirety straight through. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the, Ge- and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? 
David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeramelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while, all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came out and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. 
Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Here in Saul, we have a man who was afraid to die, who remembers what he was. He had tasted of the Spirit, in fact. He had enjoyed the rule of Israel. People had said, Behold, is Saul among the prophets? This largest man in Israel was living large for a time. He remembers what he was, and here we're seeing that he holds on to it with a deathly grip. The Philistines had gathered, so Israel does too. Saul sees the Philistines' army. He sees and he fears. He was afraid and his heart trembled. The outside threat of attack exposed Saul's inward insecurity. He can't handle them. When it comes to the tail of the tape, we can't measure up to the Philistines. This could be the end of my kingdom, the end of my life. I need answers. The problem was, he couldn't get any answers. No dreams. No guidance from the Urim and the Purim. These things, we're not exactly sure what they are, but they were prescribed by God to Israel, to discern his will. The thing is, they were kept with the ephod. Where was the ephod right now? With David. And with the only priest that survived Saul's purge of the priests, Abiathar. Saul had annihilated the priests. There was no one to offer counsel to him. Also couldn't hear from the prophets. Samuel was dead, and the only other prophet we know of right now was Gad. And Gad 
was also with David. So desperate Saul sees his utter lack of resources. Is looking out at the battlefield and recognizes the tail of the tape that is not in his favor. And Saul acts like Saul always acts. As a pragmatist. What will work in this situation? So though he had already expelled the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, in accordance with Leviticus 19, he tells his servants, go find me a woman, go find me a medium who can give me some answers. Like Saul, when she pushes back against doing this, who does Saul promise by? The name of the Lord. He continues to throw around that supposed clout, that supposed covenant name, to convince her to go ahead and give him the answers or seek the answers that he needs. In Leviticus 20, Moses has clearly written this. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. This was Saul's reality. Saul had already been told that the kingdom was going to be torn from him as he had torn Samuel's robe. And now he's going that final step. The pragmatist saying, where can I get some answers? Let me go even into the darkness. Brings up a question for us. Are mediums, necromancers, palm readers spiritists, are they truly in touch with the spirit world? The answer to that would be no and yes. Some of these people are fakes. They can feel a room They can set up circumstances. They can listen well and make general comments. That may be the case with this medium at Endor. Because she was shocked when somebody actually showed up. That could be the case today too. However, some are not fakes. The spiritual world is absolutely real. Colossians 1.16 says, All things were created by Jesus, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities. There is a spiritual world that we inhabit, though we don't always acknowledge it. We see in the Gospels over and over and over again Jesus expelling demons. 
So do these sorts of people offer real encounters with the spirit world? In some cases, yes. You might also ask the question, well, are they doing what they say they can do? For instance, people may go to a palm reader or go to a seance for the sake of connecting with someone from the other side, someone they love who is passed on. They're not connecting with that loved one. The Bible is clear that the dead do not speak or haunt the earth. What someone is experiencing is an impersonation of that loved one by an evil spirit. But why are we, and by we I mean humans, so intrigued by the spiritual world? Some of the top grossing movies and Netflix shows deal with this exact thing. A desire to connect with the dark unseen. Well, it's because we are spiritual creatures made in the image of God, whether we acknowledge him or the spiritual world. But the thing is, our world tries to convince us otherwise. That this is a closed set. There's nothing else outside of what we can touch, taste, feel, hear, see. That we are just material people living in a material world. But you know, and I know, that the people that you know, even if they're not Christians, still wonder. They still wonder. If they hear a ghost story, they start looking around behind them. Tim Chester was helpful in my thinking as I was reading his commentary. He said a couple of reasons why people interact or seek to interact. They go to a medium, they go to a seances because they're desperate for the presence of a loved one. Here Saul is undone without Samuel. He was his ride or die for a while. God had granted Samuel to Saul so that he could shepherd this king. He could restrain this king. So Saul is undone because he no longer has his counsel. He no longer feels that he's hearing from the Lord. But see, that's the thing. What Saul really wants is the presence of God. Then he would truly face a battle, regardless of the tale of the tape, with hope. Seances, similarly, are a desperate plea, a desperate attempt for reconnection to someone who has passed on. Are they okay? But see, the thing is, that's idolatry. That's putting that person up on a pedestal and saying, my life can truly not really be complete without him or her. So if we feel that desperation for the presence of a lost 
one, a lost loved one. Instead, our thinking should be, I really need God. I really need God. I really need Him to be able to face life and death with hope. People also seek out mediums because they're desperate for a word of assurance that that loved one is okay or that I'll be okay. Can you see into the future for me? Things are really muddy right now in my life. I need need a word to be able to walk forward. But can I just tell you this? We already have the greatest word of assurance that we could ever have. This word is with a capital W and his name is Jesus Christ. His gospel, his good news is that he has communicated to us by himself. So what else do we need to hear? The better question might be, do we really want to hear from God? Because if he is the word, God in the flesh expressed, full of grace and truth, the question is, then why don't we listen? Why don't we listen? Jesus, as the women came, I'm sorry, the angels, when the women came to the tomb at the end of Luke, and they're wondering where Jesus is, the angels say, why do you look for the living among the dead? Whether you're a Christian here this morning or not a Christian here this morning, hear this. Christ is the living one. The living word. The living communication from the eternal God himself. He is the eternal God himself. So let's not go running for words of reassurance from other places. Let's go running to Jesus himself. Speaking of the resurrection and the women there at the empty tomb, Tim read earlier about the transfiguration, Matthew 17, 1 through 9. And here on that mountain, Jesus had led the inner circle up. But it's not just the four of them. All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are also there. Did you catch that for some reason, there's no need for introduction? Peter, James, and John knew who they were. The one person that is reintroduced is Jesus. It's Jesus. As the Father speaks... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. See, what we have there on that mount, similarly to Samuel being brought up in front of Saul, is a glimpse of the reality of resurrection. It's not about, let's dig into like, what's the the spiritist thing going on here? The reality is, God brought Samuel back to speak a further word of judgment on Saul. God also chose to bring Elijah and Moses back bodily where they could be recognized, like Saul recognized Samuel, to give a foretaste of the reality of life beyond the grave. That there really, truly will be resurrection. 
where loved ones in Christ will be recognizable. And it will be all for the glory of God. But I'd like to ask you this question. Similarly to Saul, are you desperate to hold on to your kingdom and your rule in this life? Even while your life is falling apart, are the outside threats of attack, the things that you just can't handle, those pressures to your own self-rule, are those exposing your heart, exposing its fear, exposing it as trembling, exposing your inward insecurity. I need answers. How do I walk forward in these parts of my life? And Jesus says, listen, I died for you. I am all the answer you need. Trust me. But Saul is seeking answers from a spirit because he does not have the Holy Spirit. Christian, that is not you. If you are not a Christian this morning, that is a promise for you. If you will repent and believe, the Holy Spirit of God will indwell you and give you joy and peace and confidence and counsel in Him like you have never known before. Trust the Spirit of Christ. Because it is in him that God promises, real, promises his real presence and his real word. Yet Samuel comes back from the dead, confirms what Saul already knows. The kingdom has been torn from you. You did not obey the voice of the Lord. By tomorrow, you'll be dead just like me. Your sons too. At which Saul is even more terrified at this news. What might a terrified individual facing the next day of his death do? How about repent? How about humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he would exalt you, as James tells us? Most of us aren't given the gift of knowing when we're going to die. Saul was, in a way, given that grace. He did not respond in repentance. His heart trembles even more, even more terrified. He doubles down, in effect, showing another pitiful scene of a man who does not humble himself before the Lord as a medium tells him to obey her and he does and then she cooks up a final meal for him a sacrifice a blood offering an unleavened bread and he sits down to regain his physical strength because there's no spiritual strength left pragmatist to the last and pitiful at that. But that's only half of our passage this morning. 
David was a man who forgot who he is and flees in fear instead of following in faith. Turn back to chapter 27. Did you note the inner monologue going on? Just the first verse right there. David said in his heart. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Is that a lie? Yes. David tells himself a lie. Two. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Second lie. There is something better for you, David. Because you were anointed by God to become king and you have not yet been crowned, you will not die by the hand of Saul. And second of all, There is something better for you than that you should escape to the land of the Philistines. That's to be in your own kingdom as the king, God's anointed. Two lies. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. True. It actually happens a few verses later. And I shall escape out of his hand. Note this inner monologue. There's nothing better for him than to escape. He is a man who is afraid to die in this moment, which is interesting because at the end of chapter 26, as Jake preached to us last week, there has been this long discussion from afar between David and Saul. And Saul says, I'm not going to come after you anymore. Now, David probably thought, I can't believe him but he can still continue to believe God. Note that in chapter 27 there, in in chapter 28 where Achish then calls him his bodyguard, there's no mention of the Lord here. There's no inquiring of him. There's no humility before him. There's no seeking his face. There's no calling Abiathar and saying, can we roll out the Urim and see what we should do next? But here's David with the pressure of leading an increasingly large army and their families and his family. Legit concern, right? Legit concern. Saul had legitimate concern. But neither of these men sought the Lord in in these episodes. David just makes a desperate decision made to escape the pressure of being hunted down see in this instance like Saul even more so like the people in the book of Judges David did what was right in his own eyes he had forgotten who he was and makes a decision based out of fear based out of pragmatism instead of faith He leaves the kingdom of Judah where he was told by the prophet Gad to go and to stay. And he loses 16 months 
And we leave him, the story just like leaves him hanging here with the, what's going to happen next? He's now been named the bodyguard of the king of Gath with the expectation that he and his, men's are, he and his men are going to go out and fight against Israel. Let's dig in here a little bit. How would you finish what David just said? There is nothing better for me than dot, dot, dot. You can play that kind of two different ways. There's nothing better for me than... So you look at your circumstances, you look at your options, and you're just kind of like, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I'm just going to go here. We know that we have all been there. And we know that we have all, we've all chosen the rock or the hard place, and neither place was nice. Neither place was with the Lord. So here's the thing. You might answer that question. There is nothing better for me than, like the, the future is just bleak. My heart is just bleak. I don't know where I'm going to go from here, and I'm thankful for God's love, but my pile of regrets is just too high. I can shovel it. I can try to throw it in the garage. It's not going anywhere. My heart is full of regrets about the dot, dot, dot. I would just like to escape it. I, I wish I had never been there. It was a foolish decision or a series of foolish decisions. That's where David is. Judging his options, he's going to run and do what he can. The other side, which I'm not really going to talk a whole lot about because that's not where our text is today, is more of the, there's nothing better for me then. And the reality that we have all kinds of desires that we want to fill that dot, dot, dot with. The trick there is those things quickly become idols. Those things quickly become the things that we base our self-worth on. In fact, more than that, we base our God-worth on. If we don't get the dot, dot, dot over here, then we're thinking, what is God doing right now? Does he actually even know my life? But this passage is more about this side. There's nothing better for me than to escape. David is utterly despondent. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in his book, Spiritual Depression. He said, here's the thing. We listen to ourselves a lot. We listen to ourselves 24-7. Because you, you and I know that we listen to ourselves when we sleep. Or it feels like you're sleeping and you wake up and you're like, I've been thinking for the last hour and a half. Martin Lloyd-Jones says we listen to ourselves way too much. We need to preach to ourselves. We need to preach to ourselves. 
Listen to what he said. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Referring to Psalm 42 and 43, he's saying, Now this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. He asks this question, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why are you feeling so, uh, today? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself. Say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God. Who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Brothers and sisters, this is called preaching the gospel to yourself. By God's grace... He saves his elect for himself. He takes them from being enemies of God to being sons and daughters of God. Hallelujah. That we are no longer in the place that we were born into, but we are now in the place where we will eternally stay in his presence, even sitting here. Even in the darkest of places that you go during the week. He is there. You are his. Preach that. Let us preach that to ourselves. Let's find out that there is truly nothing better for us than God's will. Truly nothing better for us than Christ. If you know, there was a king who was sorrowful unto death. In Matthew 26, Jesus is now with his disciples again and they go to Gethsemane. taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, the same three that were up on the mountain of transfiguration together. It says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Was Jesus afraid of death? No. Jesus is not afraid of anything. Was he feeling the full sorrow 
that we feel in anticipating death? Yes, and more. He was sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. See, unlike Saul, Jesus remembered what he was. The Savior of the world. The Lamb who would be slain. And he is about to lay down his life. And also, unlike David, he remembers who he is. Ah, my father said I'm his son with whom I am well pleased. And he comes to his father again in the garden. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He comes back again just a few verses later and again prays, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He remembered who he was. He remembered who he belongs to. Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, sent to lay down his life for his brothers and sisters to bring many to glory. He would go to death for them. And you may say, but death is death. Yeah? Life being life, death is death. And you may say, I, I fear death. I don't look at Saul and David. That would be me too. That is who I am right now, maybe. I know there are a lot of other fears up here, but when it gets to like the root fears, I fear death. Did you know this? That we're not supposed to fear death? If you're a Christian, death is not something to fear. Because Jesus in his death defeated the fear of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, listen to this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus here. Again, I will put my trust in him, entrusting himself to the Father, even as he went to the cross. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And then the author of Hebrews explains it a little bit more. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. And he's speaking here of Jesus being a child as well. A child like us, sharing in flesh and blood. He himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. That through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me just help you see what he just said. Your ultimate fear is death. It may play out in different ways in your life. You may try to assuage it. You may try to push it down. You might try to ignore it. You might try to medicate it. Your ultimate fear is death. And you're a slave to that fear. But Jesus died so you no longer have to be. You will no longer be. Because Christians, though we still have times like David when we fear death and we try to escape circumstances that might expose our lack of assurance, that might expose who we feel like we are inside, Jesus speaks a better word. And he says, listen, I died so that you will no longer die. You will go to the grave but that grave, as it says in Proverbs, that grave is not ultimately a grave. You pass from life to life. From life to life. That is who we are, brothers and sisters. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham, all those people who are of faith in Christ. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to take the wrath of God upon himself and cleanse their hearts. Forgiven and clean. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, that was the sorrow going on in the garden. He was being tempted to turn the cup away. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted tempted brothers and sisters when we are tempted let's call it for what it really is a fear of death but let's remember that that's not ultimately the truth let's preach to ourselves and say yes there will be a day and I don't know exactly what death is going to feel like I don't know exactly when it's going to come, but I know that on the other side, I will see Jesus. So, what's the fear? If he's waiting for me there, and he's holding my hand here, and we're walking together, so that on that other side, my faith becomes sight, our faith becomes sight, then what are we afraid of? He has suffered when tempted. 
and he's able to help those who are being tempted. Let's not run away. Let's not medicate. Let's not ignore. Let's not walk in foreign lands for 16 months just saying, like, I'm just going to kind of do me for a while and come back to God when things feel better. Lord, forgive us for our pragmatism. Give us instead, God, wisdom to make good decisions, to walk forward in faith because he has made us wise through his word and through his spirit. Lord, as we humble ourselves before you this morning, we ask that your spirit would stir our hearts to humble obedience, to grateful trust, to full belief. Oh Lord, help our unbelief. And we ask God, the Father who has given his Son to bring many children to glory, those, those children, Jesus, that you are bringing with you, bring more. Not for our sake. We might not even ever meet them. But Lord, worldwide, would you bring more children into your house? And if you would so bless us, do that here too. We pray this for your glory alone, God. Amen.